0: So before I get into talking about that, I wanted to mention a little book called The Calvary Road. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this book. It was written by a guy named Roy Heschen about in uh, 1950, over 60 years ago. And I consider it one of the best Christian books I've ever read because it is small. It's only just about 120 pages. <laughs> and it, it, it gets to the point. It says so much that really matters when it comes to living a genuine Christian life. And it says it with clarity and simplicity, and that's why I like it. And it's one of the books that I read early in my Christian life as a young man that really affected me and and really showed me that there was more to my faith than just going to church and and knowing truths about the scripture. But there had to be a heart reality there more. And I highly recommend it to everyone. It's uh, one of the best I've ever read. So just first for Westworth, and I, and I mention that is because the principle that it talks about, at least one of the principles, the principle of brokenness is, uh, keeps, has kept coming up for me in my life, and it's uh, time and time again, and, and, uh, and so I thought uh, when it comes to talking about manhood, us men need brokenness, or God cannot use us. So that's what this sermon's about. Let's see if I hit the forward button. There we go. Hey, it works. Awesome technology. Yeah. So we're going to start off by talking about the description of Christian brokenness. And you notice that uh, if you look in the dictionary, you won't find brokenness. It's sort of a made-up word within Christian circles. You find broken, you know, breaking and all that. But but in the noun form, you don't find it. And maybe they maybe you know being broken is what's used. But brokenness. And so if you've never heard that term. Um, I'm using it in this sermon to ex- express, um, as you'll see as, t- as we go on here. So let's start by looking at what brokenness is not. And I want to do that because quite often, you know, these words can have a lot of different meanings. And in this case, um, you know, when we think of broken or brokenhearted, a lot of different ideas can come to mind. And I want to make sure we filter out the ones that don't have to do with uh, the principle that I'm trying to get at in this message. So, what brokenness is not? And there's several points under here. And first one is that a broken heart is, or what it's not, is a broken heart that's due to tragedy or hardship. And I got a couple of examples from Scripture there talking about that. Uh, Proverbs 17:22, A merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. And a similar one, uh, Proverbs 18, and 14, the spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness, but who can bear a broken spirit? Now, now that's talking about the reality of intense emotional stress or or hurt because of something that's happened in one's life. And that's not the shade of meaning that I'm getting at as far as the principle I'm talking about today. That that is something that can happen to all of us, and God can use that kind of thing to bring about the brokenness that I'm going to talk about. So again, we're not talking about uh, you know broken hardness. We hear the phrase, oh, she died of a broken heart. I'm not talking about that um, kind of brokenness. What else is brokenness not? Uh, being an emotional basket case. And, and what exactly is that? Well, let's look at a few verses that might allude to, to the meaning of that. Uh, First of all, 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. All right, and another one, uh, Proverbs 19.3, The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. A different translation would say um, the a, a fool, by his own actions, he dist- ruins his life, and his heart rages against the Lord. So it's it's that state that you get into when you've you've ruined your life by your own foolishness uh, proverbs 5:22 his own iniquities entrapped the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin so what do these what do these have in common uh, you know wrong thinking and wrong doing done long enough they lead to constant wrong feeling and that becomes like bondage like chains and, and that's what i'm talking about when you're emotional basket case it's like you have no control anymore. You can't control your thoughts and your feelings because you've been going on a certain path so long. And I know, Dave, in biblical counseling, you probably talk about that principle and, and how to get out of it. Now, that's not the kind of brokenness I'm talking about either because that's bondage. The kind of brokenness I'm going to talk about is, is liberating. Now, th- this being a basket case, I think God can use something like that to bring about real brokenness as well. What about a third one? What else is broken as not? Passivity. Passivity. James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And James 4.17 says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And Romans 12.21 Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, what do these verses talk about? Well, they're talking about not doing what should be done, waiting for life to happen to yourself and then being reactive, using weakness that's real or imagined as an excuse for doing nothing. The passivity might be seen by some, especially, and I know it because I've been there, I, I was there a lot when I was a young man, and I thought, well, this is just the way I am. I, I don't—no one can expect me to do other things that that you know people who are more assertive can do. And the Lord, you know, convicted me on that subject too as, as my Christian life went on. But uh, the passivity that someone might say, well, I, I'm just um, you know what I can't think of the word, but I, I'm just laid back i, I don 't want to you know make any waves i don 't want to rock the boat i don 't want to hurt anyone 's feelings i 'm just going to be quiet and, and let life happen. Well, someone might say, well you know that person is broken they they 're you know humble and submitted but it's that 's not the kind of brokenness we 're talking about either that 's a, a false sense of brokenness that 's not the way the Lord would have us be uh, and and now this final term here in under this section sort of an Encapsulates all those. It's uh, what else is brokenness not? It's being a Melvin Milktoast. Has everyone heard that that phrase, that idiom? Uh, it's uh, it actually comes from a, a comic strip back in the 1920s. A character was named Casper Milktoast, and he just had the the quality of being um, weak and bland and you know timid, and and apparently it caught on in society, and and so that's that's where that term comes from. But uh, Talking about when it relates to a man in manhood, you know, it's a, it's a cliche for a weak, ineffectual, bland person, a man lacking the more masculine traits such as strength, courage, leadership, being proactive, perseverance, and endurance. But you know, if, if someone lacks all those, God can even use that to move a man toward real brokenness. Uh, so in each of these cases, I think God can use the wrong kind of brokenness to move someone towards how He really wants them to be broken. So that's a little bit of what brokenness is not. Well, let's look at um, what brokenness is. That's the definition we're waiting for. Now you know there's a there's some spiritual concepts that are more intangible than others. You know some are really easily understood and others are just more vague and take a lot more description. And th- this is one of those that it's sort of an underpinning type of concept, which is, it's a foundational one that when we have it, then the other ones that are more visible are, are easier to see. So I'm, I'm going to attempt here to put some flesh on this spiritual attitude of brokenness, and what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life of King David a man after God's own heart, and we're going to look at um, 1 Samuel 13, 13 to 14. That's where the phrase, man after God's own heart, comes from. Uh, And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue the Lord has sought for Himself a man after His own heart. That's where that saying comes from, and He's talking about David. And the Lord has commanded him to be command over His people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now that just shows us where that title, one of those titles for King David's character, comes from. But the and the background, of course, was you know Saul was the first king of Israel that God had chosen. Samuel anointed him. Everyone was all you know, happy about it, and God told him to do, one of the things he told him to do was you know, crush the Amalekites who had been unkind to Israel in the past, and he, he was told to wipe them all out, and he, he did not do it. He was afraid of the people. He chose to save the spoils of the battle, even though God told him to just get rid of all of it. And he disobeyed God, and Samuel found out, and, and you know, God told Samuel that King Saul hasn't obeyed, and that was like the last um, straw for God, and God told Samuel, I'm going to find another man. And, and what this, there, this then is what happened when Samuel came to Saul and confronted him about that disobedience to the Lord. And that's where we get that, that saying, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken is better than the fat of rams. And so God was going to bring forth, bring up a, a man who was going to have a different heart, a different spirit, uh, whom he'd been preparing from childhood on. And... You know, there's many events in King David's life where his brokenness before the Lord is lived out, and we're going to look closely at just one, and make a vague reference to a few others. Let's look at uh, brokenness manifested in King David's life. Now, we're going to look at it from 2 Samuel 16:5 to 13. You have to, if you want to follow in your Bible, you may. I'm going to read it out of the Scripture here, and also chapter 19, verses 15 to 23. This is a story where. You know, king David had been king a while. And of course, he had quite a few different sons through his different wives. And one of those um, uh, sons was Absalom. And Absalom had gotten too big for his britches and thought that he would try to captivate the hearts of Israel and, and make everyone think that if he was king, he could do a better job than his father. And we find that um, eventually he plans, he's treasonous and he plans to you know, take over the kingdom. And when David finds out about it, um, he evacuates Jerusalem and takes all of the king's household with him and all his um, mighty men, just everyone who's loyal to him, they, they go with him. And, and as he's leaving Jerusalem, uh, one of the things that happens is he comes across this guy named Shimei who's calling curses down on him. And this is where we pick it up in chapter 16, verse 5. Now when King David came to Behurim, that's a city just past the Mount of Olives as you're heading east of uh, Jerusalem, but it would have been back then. So when King David came to Behurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei the son of Girah, coming from there. And he came out cursing continuously as he came. Uh, so he's from the house of Saul and of course the house of Saul had a lot of um, uh, bad blood towards um, David because Saul was the one who was deposed and David set up his king by the Lord's doing. Of course, the household of Saul, those who were left, had a grudge, even though it was the Lord's doing and the Lord's judgment. So this man came out, cursing continuously as he came, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue, or that could be translated, you worthless man, The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. And the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son, talking about Absalom, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite. Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Now how many of us would just keep on going and letting that happen and not try to stop it? I, I don't know. If we had the power to stop it, that's what I'm talking about. So there's the story, the background, and we're going to look at this, use this to look at attitudes that David had in this situation. And the first one is he had an attitude of spirit which produces patience. Now, he's the king of Israel. He's a sovereign. He can put to death anyone he wants, you know, within the law of God and, and so forth. And, and all he had to do was give the word, and Abishai would have gone over and taken the guy's head off. And... Um, and obviously Shimei was so mad, so angry at David, that he was willing to risk his life to go there and, and belittle him and call down curses on him, knowing that he might have revenge taken out on him. But that didn't happen. David was quite patient to put up with that because when we see what his attitude is, when we look at the rest of these, you know, we, we see that they're all sort of commingled together in a big lump. The first one, patience, Another one, um, an attitude of spirit which produces meekness. Meekness, I think we've heard it said, it's power under control. Now, King David had a lot of power, but he was exercising control. And he just continued to walk along and accepted what was being done to him. Uh, He was, In fact, a lot of times as you read about King David's life, I think a lot of the men who served him sometimes got a little frustrated with how meek he was and how how merciful he was often to people. Uh, but that's because he, had a, he was a man after God's own heart, and maybe these other guys weren't as much. Well, another thing we get from there, an attitude of spirit which produces surrender to God's sovereignty. Where do we get that out of there? Well, it's when he said... Mm-mm. Um. See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamin? Let him alone and let him curse, for so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with a good good for his cursing this day. David was willing to be surrendered to what God was allowing to happen. Now, I I suppose he could have stayed in Jerusalem and tried tried to battle to the death, but he was wiser than that. And he wasn't—he wasn't going to try to stop his son from taking over, because he, to some degree, when you look at his background, when you see the whole story of his life, he must have been thinking that perhaps, maybe his time was done, and maybe the Lord had it with him, and it was time for him to go. Maybe it was time for someone else to be king. And David was willing to entrust it in God's hands. Like, if that's true, then I won't be able to come back. But if the Lord brings me back, and the Lord restores my restores my kingship, then I'll know that um, I've endured this patiently and he's blessing me. So God was willing to, because of, or David, because of his brokenness, was willing to be surrendered and trust God with the situation instead of trying to do things his own way. And we also see that uh, he had an attitude of spirit which produces humility. And Obviously, as the king, you know, being a sovereign king, he could do whatever he wants. But think about it. Here he is, this guy of the household of Saul, cursing him, and he's actually agreeing that maybe David's saying about himself, yeah, maybe I am the problem. God perhaps has called this guy to curse me, has put it on him to curse me, because I have been the problem of everything bad that's going on in Israel and maybe it's time, maybe it is time for me to go. He was humble. He was willing to think first, maybe the problem is with me, before he was thinking maybe it's somewhere else. Finally, in this from this passage, an attitude of spirit which produces mercy. Well, when we look forward to, actually, you know, I didn't even read the, the second section here. Let's go to chapter 19, verses 15 to 23, because that's where we get this uh, mercy thing from. Chapter 19, starting at verse 15. Then the king returned. This this is, you know, after Absalom was defeated, you know, uh, one of um, David's army generals, Joab, disobeyed David's commands. David had told him, hey, when Absalom and his army comes after us, you go out to fight him, see that no harm befalls Absalom. Yet when Absalom was caught in a tree by his hair and Joab found out about it. Joab went and killed him with spears, disobeying David's command. David later found out about it, and of course um, he had to live with that spirit and Joab the rest of his kingship. But uh, uh, because Absalom was killed, David was able to come back, and we fast forward to now where they're coming back over the Jordan because they had gone over the Jordan to the east to get away, and now they're coming back to the west over the Jordan River Back to Jerusalem, and Shimei, who who understands now that um, Absalom has been conquered and David's coming back, Shimei's is quaking in his boots because you know <laughs> this guy who he cursed and then got away with, he's coming back now. So this is this is what we see happen. Uh, verse 15. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go to meet the king to escort the king across the Jordan, and and Shimei the son of Gera Benjamite who was from Behurim, hastened and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And there were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons, and his twenty servants with him. They went over the Jordan before the king. Then a ferryboat, they had ferryboats back in those days. <laughs> then a ferryboat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. I think that was the proper thing for him to do. Then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity in me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph, to go down and to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, here's Abishai again, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zerai? There's that statement again. That you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. So there you see mercy, full and free, coming to this man. And you see later on, only once, De- once Solomon, David's son, took over the kingdom, that then Solomon gave Shimei a test of his faithfulness, and he failed it. So then Shimei was executed that time, but that would have been years later. So this guy lived under David's mercy all that time, then he still screwed up and still um, paid for it. Now, you know, we could go to other episodes in David's life. but don't have the time for all that, just a, a brief... Really quick mention, and and from those other episodes, we could see more qualities that the of of spirit of brokenness produces. For example, repentance, Psalm fifty one. That Chuck quoted a few verses from this morning. Um, David had committed adultery and then murdered to cover it up um, with Bathsheba, and then Uriah the, and sent Uriah to the front lines. He was killed. And Nathan the prophet came and confronted him, and, and he broke and admitted his wrong, and God uh, chastised him severely. But uh, brokenness helps bring about repentance, and it'll bring about immediately if it's there, you know if the brokenness is there and ready, then the repentance can come ready you know, immediately also. It took a while for David. he wasn't broken for a long time until Nathan came to him. Another one: love. You know he loved his son Absalom, he loved Jonathan, the son of Saul. He even loved Saul. he didn't he wouldn't destroy Saul even though Saul was going after him, he had many chances to destroy him and he would not. He said, "I will not touch the Lord's anointed. He feared God. he He loved Saul. I'm sure he probably wanted Saul to change and he, I'm sure he wanted Absalom to change. He probably felt guilty that that it was because of his own Failures, maybe that Absalom was the rebel that he was and, and caused the problems that happened. Uh, he made a covenant with Jonathan, the son of Saul. He, he, he was a man of love. Also, kindness. You know, After Saul's death, uh, when he was killed by the Philistines, David said, said, Who is left of the house of Saul whom I can keep showing kindness to? So even after the Lord's anointed was killed and David came to power, he still wanted to show kindness to Saul's descendants when he could have just wiped them all out. He could have done that, but he didn't. And Mephibosheth was one of those guys he showed kindness to. David was a man of the fear of God. Uh, again, he would not harm Saul. You know, he would not touch the Lord's anointed. Think, think of how poldy he was in his, in his mind and emotions to be hunt, being hunted down like a dog, yet at the same time not being willing to strike back. You know, and again, his, the guys who were with him sometimes were astonished. like, why, why won't you just knock him off and be done with him? And uh, even later, you know, after Saul was killed in battle and someone came boasting that they had helped to kill him, and David said, you didn't think it was anything too big a deal to, to strike the Lord's anointed? David had the guy put to death. <laughs> so... Uh, you yeah, know, David had fear of God. And another one, um, self-control. You know, again, he, he, he didn't destroy various enemies when he had the chance uh, throughout his career. Others he destroyed. You know, God knew he, that David knew that God was giving him the authority to destroy certain enemies. But there's other times when he would not because of the situation. So he, he had self-control. Now, what do you notice when you look at all these things? Patience, meekness, trust in God, humility, mercy, repentance, love, kindness, fear of God, self-control. What do those sound like? Fruits of the Holy Spirit's work in a person. So let's come to a a definition of brokenness here. Brokenness is a state of your mind, soul, and spirit, a condition of your heart, by which there is then fertile ground for the Spirit of God to produce his life in you. That's why I say it's an it's a underpinning type of virtue because it's, it's sort of a, a prerequisite to being able to walk on with the Lord and, and experience the life he wants to live in you. It's a, there's other synonyms for this. It's a surrender of your entire being to his convicting power. It's dying to self that the scripture speaks about. It's being crucified with Christ that the scripture speaks about. Bending the stiff neck. You know, bending the stiff neck. Of course, that phrase was used in ancient Israel all the time by the prophets of God's people, Israel. They were stiff-necked people. Bowing the knee to him. Essentially a prerequisite for genuinely living the Christian life. What I want to do now is answer the question, what does it look like when you do not have true brokenness? I have no subpoints on the PowerPoint for this because I just want you to listen to all these examples. These examples that, are, that I'm going to say are meant to show the ugliness which a lack of true brokenness will foster. For unbrokenness of heart is ugly in God's sight. Would you agree? And now these are examples from the past Based on my own lifetime of personal experiences with myself and with other people, or with people who have given me a testimony of, of things they've experienced in their life, and they're all sort of mixed up. Although well, one thing I've done is at the beginning, I've, I've listed a bunch that I have to do specifically with men, anywhere from young men all the way to fathers, husbands, and so forth. But you know, based on what I've I've observed in people's lives, you know, no one is immune from being unbroken it can it's a plague that can get anybody at any time in life uh, whatever the situation is and i use the word plague as it is i think it's a plague on on god's people because it was the thing that he kept confronting them with that because they had a stiff neck therefore they couldn't experience all his blessings now as i give these examples i want to be very clear to say None of these are allusions to Pastor Dave or any fellow leaders that I work with okay because because i 'm going to be a lot of these are talking about relationships within the body between people who come to church and leaders between you know it 's just talking about a lot about relationships and some of them have to do with church leaders and so forth these are things i 've experienced I served in leadership in in previous church and it 's just um, i 've I've, See all these, and so I, I sat down and I tried to come up with as many examples I could think of without going too far, but I got enough that you get, get a picture here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read these off, and you can just try to listen. I don't think you'll be able to write them all down because I don't have the time to read them slow enough. So just, just listen, and here we go. What does it look like when you do not have true brokenness? A Christian man who places more value on his own pursuits than on being a part of the body of Christ and shows it by where he spends his time and money. A Christian man who is silent about his faith when around unbelievers. The husband who easily sees the sins of his wife while downplaying or excusing his own sins. A husband who has a cold war with his wife and does not make the first move to resolve it. I'm guilty. I've learned my lessons. Uh. The father who refuses to admit to his wife and children when he is wrong and he knows it. A father who abandons his role to shepherd his children spiritually. A single Christian man who ignores God's principles for choosing a marriage partner and dabbles with an unbelieving woman or otherwise uses the world's ungodly methods. The Christian young man who would dare to say, I love you, to a woman when he is not committed to marrying her and being faithful to her for life. The prospective husband who enters into marriage for his own satisfaction with little understanding of sacrificial love. The young man who thinks it's not cool to listen to the wisdom of those who are older and wiser. A brother in Christ who harbors unforgiveness and disobedience to God's word. Those specifically had to do with men. Now we move on into... um, relationships in the church in general, some of these still have to do with men. A pastor who can preach and lead in a dynamic way for years while at the same time carrying on a secret affair. Again, th- th- what I'm reading here is, what does it look like when you do not have true brokenness? Someone who remains jealous of the success of someone else's ministry and gloats over the failure of another's. A prospective missionary who desires to go to the mission field primarily because of the potential for adventure. A church leader who carves out his or her own little niche or kingdom within the larger church body and bristles at anything which might upset it. A pastor who fails to realize that his main goal should not be to see how big he can grow his church. Again, a pastor who fails to realize that his main goal should not be to see how big he can grow his church. Again, no illusions to Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave, I appreciate your ministry. I, I think of all the different pastors I've experienced in my life, you've got brokenness more than any I've seen. So, uh, someone who uses the principles of Matthew 18, that's the chapter that talks about confronting a sinning brother in, in, in various steps. Someone who uses the principles of Matthew 18 in a strictly academic and uncompassionate way as a club a club to force another into confession and repentance. In other words, you haven't taken the the beam out of your own eye first while you're trying to take the speck out of your brother's eye and you're using Matthew 18 to try to get that speck out. A believer who is shy and thinks he or she cannot change and uses that as an excuse for not loving the family of God through genuine fellowship. I was guilty of that a lot when I was a young man. I use shyness as an excuse to not live the Christian life. The Lord convicted me on it, and I've grown in that. I still think I could grow a lot more in that. Missionaries who are not honest with church leaders or a mission board regarding their struggles on the mission field. A member of the body of Christ who undermines someone else's ministry by criticizing it to others behind their back. Someone serving in the church who thinks that his or her particular ministry burden is the most important thing in the life of the church while at the same time not caring to appreciate the heartbeat of others' ministries. A church committee member who gets bent out of shape when a pastor suggests changes to what the committee has worked on, I've been guilty of that in the past, Mm -hmm. A pastor tries to control everything in his church's ministry in an attempt to protect his name and reputation and interests instead of protecting Christ's name and reputation and interests. A church member who listens to criticisms about leaders or other members and takes up the reproach without ever going to the ones who are criticized to hear what they have to say. A missionary who fails on the mission field and makes church leaders look bad in order to cover his failure as much as possible. A church member who ignores God's command to be impartial and instead chooses blind loyalty towards a certain leader or pastor. Someone who leaves a church because it doesn't cater to their personal likes or tastes, instead of focusing on how they can serve there, Someone who seeks to be in any kind of ministry for the appearance of greater spirituality and the praise of people. A believer who judges others by his or her own convictions on how to apply the word of God. Someone who serves in order to receive thanks and harbors bitterness when no recognition comes. And finally, believers who need discipleship in order to walk more faithfully with Christ, but choose not to pursue it even after many years of hearing of the need for it. Now, as you can see, this list is a wide array of problems. And you know what? You could go on. I could go on for hours just with real-life examples, let alone just concocting, you know, examples out of thin air of what it could look like. But the point is, is that at the core of all these They have the plague of unbrokenness. It's the unyielding self, the big I, that's at the heart of the issue. That's the fundamental nature of sin, having the focus on me instead of loving God and obeying his principles. At the core of these is, is me, I. And the problem with it is, for the most part, me, I don't see that I'm doing this, that I'm doing these things, that I'm being this way. That's why we need our brothers and sisters to, to, to help us to realize that we are. Well, how do you come to have true biblical brokenness? From Psalm thirty two. I guess who wrote Psalm thirty-two? King David. Now, he wrote Psalm 51 as a psalm of his actual repentance after his adultery with Bathsheba and, and what he did to Uriah. And, um, but later on, he probably wrote this as an as a afterthought of how blessed it is to be forgiven. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly read it and go down some of the principles that we get of how we come to true biblical brokenness. Remember? Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silent, my bones grew old, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you, in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near to you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye upright in heart. So King David wrote this, and first of all, recognize your lack of brokenness when God convicts you of it, verses 3 and 4. You know, if, if you're being convicted, and this, this, this applies to any sin in general, but since brokenness is sort of a, or unbrokenness is sort of a, Uh, a core sin that creates all kinds of other sins. If you're convicted of being unbroken, recognize the lack of it. And verses 3 and 4, you know, when I kept silent, my bones old. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So what did David do? Be honest with God and confess your need of it. Confess your need of being broken in this case. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The guy who wrote this book, Roy Hesham, I think my, one of my favorite quotes in this book is he said, the blood, talking about the blood of Christ shed on Calvary, the cross, then the cleanse of sin, he said, the blood does not cleanse excuses, but always cleanses sin confessed as sin. That, is, that, that might sound like a trite little quote, but it's, it's so true. We don't get grace to, to change until we label things sin, label them for the sin that they are. And that's what David did here. Then what did he do? Draw near to God. Verse 6, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you, draw near to God in prayer, in a time when you may be found, surely in the flood of great waters they shall not come near him. You are my hiding place, you shall preserve me from troubles, and you shall surround me with songs of deliverance. He drew near to God so so that he would be more protected, so that he could maintain his brokenness. And he was willing to submit himself to God in brokenness. And he says that principle in verse 8. He says, I will instruct... Now, some people say this is David saying this to the readers of the psalm. Others say that this is the Lord saying this, but whichever way. I will instruct you and, and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or the mule. The video, the bucking broncos, the unbroken bucking broncos, uh... If God is like the rider on the bucking bronco, and I am like the bucking bronco, I am about as useful to God for getting anything done for his purposes as that bucking bronco is for having someone sit on it and actually get somewhere with it. Um, That's why I like to show that, because the picture, the video is worth a thousand words. Um, The the image of unbrokenness. And... uh, but don't be like the horse and the mule, which have no understanding, or which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, that they will not come near to you. Then walk in the spirit and deal with sin moment by moment. Uh, not from this is two extra things I'm adding. They don't appear in this psalm, but they appear in New Testament scripture. Well-known verse of Galatians 5:16, I say then walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking in the spirit is basically moment by moment listening to his convicting voice. And if, we, if I sin, admitting it, asking for forgiveness, receiving it, and then going on in obedience, a moment by moment thing rather than letting it build up until we have to be severely chastised and broken and then starting over again, moment by moment. And this one I think is really important, key, Walk in the light with your Christian brothers and sisters. 1 John 1, 5-7 This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, what's this, what is this walking in the light? It is talking about transparency and honesty with all my brothers and sisters in the Lord. Transparency and honesty regarding my own sin. If, if I hide my sin, if I walk in darkness and don't confess it, then I can't be healed. Somewhere else in Scripture it says, confess your faults to one another so that you may be healed. I'm talking about healing from your malady of sin. So, I... I know the author of this book highly talks about that, that principle of walking in the light. It's not just good enough to ask God to clean up your sin as it it keeps happening, but the fellowship part is key to to cement it and to bring about that humility. There's something about being honest about our weakness and sin with others that then brings up humility. And only brokenness does that. Unbrokenness won't dare do that. Mm -mm. So what does it look like when you do have true brokenness? When when the lessons of it are learned and it's getting established in the heart as a way to be, you know, instead of ignoring it? And this is where I've got to thank Jason Nightingale last week. You know, he, he preached from the Beatitudes, Matthew 5. And, you know, those Beatitudes are a very compact place in Scripture talk about what it looks like when someone is broken in the right kind of way. So I'm not going to read them. He read them last week. What I'll do is, I'm not going to read them from front to back right now. I'll just make reference to them. You know, first thing, um, where he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, when, when you have true brokenness, You'll recognize that you are nothing, and only Christ makes you something. Now, that is a liberating point. If you've gotten to that place in your Christian life when you realize that you really are nothing without Him, and only Christ makes you something, this can be painful itself at first. But it will give you a way to, or it, get, it will give a way to a highly peaceful rest of soul and spirit once it's accepted there's no sadness in that only joy blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth if you're broken you'll have spiritual power under control to be used for God's glory instead of using the gifts He's given you to magnify yourself and to lift yourself up you'll be using them for God's glory when you're broken Blessed are, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. We'll have a high sensitivity to sin, especially to things that you may have previously thought were not sin at all. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mm-mm. God's mercy will freely flow out of you to others, because you'll know that you did not deserve God's mercy, but you have it. I, This is a big one to me. I've seen too many places over the years of people not being merciful to others because of wrongs done and yet turning a blind eye to how God's merciful to them. That's scary to me, especially in light of that parable about the unmerciful servant. Um, That's a a lesson that needs to be learned. Uh, blessed, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. When you're broken, you will not want to hide sin, but instead get it out in the open and deal with it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You will want to seek peace and unity, the truth and love, in all your relationships with believers, and you'll desire for unbelievers to be made right with God. lest are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You will rest in God and trust him, even if doing his will results in hardship or mistreatment. Because again, we're willing to, at that point, when we're broken, we're willing to let him have his way, even if we're getting hurt. Now what else? What else does it look like if we have true brokenness? You'll produce the fruit of the Spirit just as King David did and God will use your life to genuinely bless others in this fallen world. See, we we can think that, we can do a lot of Christian things, can't we, and think that we're serving God and it can all be done in unbrokenness of heart. And until we're broken and we have that attitude which lets us produce the fruit of the Spirit, until then, the things we're doing for him won't amount to anything. When I think about um, you know, when we're at the judgment seat of Christ being rewarded for what we did and a lot of things are going to burn up, it's the things that we did without in the spirit of unbrokenness. Things that we did for ourselves, thinking that we're serving God. Uh, so, the fruit of the Spirit will be produced and when you're broken, then dealing with sin as it comes will keep you in a state of readiness to do what God wants. Because because when we get mired in sin, we're not really able too much to do what he wants, can we? It's, it's, uh, it stops us. It just inhibits us. We can try to, but again, it won't amount to anything. So dealing with sin ongoing. And sort of what this author hints at one of the themes of the book, you will know the real meaning of Christian revival, not a passing emotional high, but the Christ life lived out in you moment by moment. You know, quite often, because revival has been a term used in the 20th century so much, you know, a guy comes into town, preaches a bunch of uplifting, inspirational messages, Everyone's all feels great about it, and then you know, it lasts for a little while, and then it fades out. A real personal revival is just simply having this attitude of brokenness which will allow God to work in us and we just have it ongoing. If you're broken, you'll find yourself getting frustrated at all the clutter of culture and society which dampens your spiritual life. This clutter just gets in the way of knowing and living that life of simplicity in Christ. You may find yourself even making changes so that you can run the Christian race the way God intends. So those are uh, a bunch of thoughts on what it does look like when we have it. How long do you need true brokenness? I think you've been able to tell from what I've been saying that you need to have it continuously if you are to live the Christ life continuously. Uh, It it does no good to be stopping and starting. uh, God wants us to have the joy of knowing his love and grace and mercy as we constantly deal with sin, instead of letting it build up and being deceived by it, until it builds up to a crisis where God has to chastise us and break us hard. He wants us just to keep walking steadily. God's into steadiness, and he wants us to experience that. Now, Leanna, if you want to go ahead and cue up the, the final video, go ahead and do that and, and let me know when you think you're ready. Mm-mm. But uh, at the beginning video, you saw a bunch of unbroken bulls and, and uh, horses, broncos, that they use for rodeo. And now what we're going to do is we're going to contrast that with a horse that's, that's broken and useful for its rider to actually get somewhere and, and do something and you're going to get the first-person point of view. We're going to first look at one of these clips, just a short clip from the rodeo session. (laughs) Is that how we are with God? Or are we like this horse here? This is an equestrian um, event where someone's riding a horse. And they have a camera on their, probably on their chest here on their helmet. And they're jumping over things. And, but obviously the horse knows its rider well, and the rider knows the horse well. The horse is broken. It's useful to the, its master. With, with no effort at all, it can go over obstacles and go wherever its rider wants to take it. It doesn't resist. The rider will give it a pat on the neck, encouraging it. Just like God will give us a pat on the back when we're when we're walking with Him, and it all works together in a beautiful way when it's right. <clears throat> you can go up hills. What a contrast with the guy on the back of the bucking bronco who's. who's Can't hang on more than four or five seconds before he goes flying through the air and falling on the ground. Thanks, Leanna, for playing that. Um, So I'm going to end with that. I'm going to close in prayer now. Um, I hope, trust that I've been able to paint a picture of this core principle that needs to be operational in our lives or our Christianity just is not the way it needs to be. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Lord, you are the master, and you can look into our hearts and see where they are at, each one here, including mine. And you know, Lord, you know where our struggles are. You know where the realms of unbrokenness are in us. I pray that you'll search those out. I pray for anyone here who recognizes, perhaps, that they're in a state of unbrokenness, that you would help them to work towards it by seeking your face and doing the principles described here, that they might know the blessing, Lord, of of being broken by you and being used by you and knowing that love relationship that you want us to have with you. Pray that that will be a reality for each one of us. Pray for us men who need it if we're going to be the men that you want us to be in this world and our society where it's at today. Help us to be men who are broken in our inner heart so that we will live out the kind of manhood that you want us to live, Lord. That's the kind of manhood that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm.